Okay, so we finished our little three circles series last week of gospel content, gospel community, and gospel cause or mission. So what are we doing today? Well, for the next eight to nine weeks, we're going to be walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Anybody know where we find that in the Bible? Where it is? Sermon on the Mount? I'll give you a hint. It's in the New Testament. And since it's Jesus teaching, yeah, it's in one of the Gospels. It's even in the Gospel of Matthew. And chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. So if you guys have a little ribbon in your Bible or something like that, you can just leave it there for the next two months or so. That's not to say you shouldn't read elsewhere in your Bible in the next two months, but that's where we're going to be spending our Sunday mornings. Um, Okay, before we start teaching through this, I want to do something a little crazy and read the whole thing. Okay? This is going to take about 12 minutes, depending on how fast readers we have here. I want all of us This might take a little bit longer than normal, but I want all of us to read a paragraph, okay? So we're going to start right here, and we're going to go all the way around, and we're just going to snake, okay? We're going to read the whole thing, chapters 5 through 7. It's going to take us about 12 minutes, but this is really important. I want to get a big picture view of this whole sermon before we start looking at individual little sections. So I want to read the whole thing. And this is not an excuse for you to just kind of glaze over for the next 12 minutes, okay? I want you to... Pay attention, not only because this is God's word to you, and it's Jesus, the Son of God, preaching to you, but I want you to be able to make some observations after we read this. So after after we finish reading the entire thing, I'm just going to ask you, what stood out to you? What questions do do you maybe have? Okay, we're just going to make some initial quick observations. So, uh, just read a paragraph or so. If it's not really clear, you can just stop, and the person next to you will pick it up. Okay, ready? Twelve minutes. Ready, go. Real loud, so everybody can hear. Woo! That's a lot. All right, we got just initial thoughts, observations. Say, I have no idea what this part means. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, well, you, I was going to say this later, but you pretty much stole one of my points about this sermon, is that it's everywhere. It's in Godspell, in Jesus Christ Superstar, and Ben-Hur, and if you've ever seen the movie, the Monty Python movie, Life of Brian, they make a, like a parody of this sermon. Uh, it is everywhere. I looked up this week... I was hoping to find, because surely it would be out there, like the, the internet database for Sermon on the Mount references and movies, and it doesn't exist. I was so heartbroken. So if anyone wants to start keeping track of this, I'll pay you in Dr. Peppers and Beef Jerky. But I did find a quote, I have not seen the movie yet, from Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, that <laughs> apparently in this movie somebody says, blessed is the pure in heart. So it's even an Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. So yes, you're right. The sermon is everywhere. Okay, 
I'll say more about that in just a minute, but what else? Just initial thoughts. Thanks, Nathan, by the way. This is Nathan Patterson, first time with us. All right, yeah. Come on. What do you see here? What do you think Jesus is, just have any like thoughts on like his big idea or uh, what he's trying to say or why he's saying it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, that's a good question. I'm not going to answer that right now. But <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in here. Not just that. There's a lot in here. They're like, "What? He can't be serious." Okay. What else? Yeah. That's a major theme throughout, so good. Good observation. Yeah. Right? Yep, that's there. I mean, just think about it. A lot of the most famous passages from the entire Bible are in these three chapters. The Beatitudes, the city on a hill, salt and light of the world, the turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, the Lord's Prayer, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough of its anxiety of its own. Judge not that you be judged. This is the rally cry of our culture today. That's here. Take the log out of your own eye. Seek and you shall find. Do unto others as you would do unto them. That's all in these three chapters. So are these just kind of random little sayings, just kind of all over the place, or is there some continuity throughout? Hang on just a second. Go ahead. Right? Yep. Okay. So your parents appreciate the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Go ahead, Nathan. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, this is everywhere. Even our president is a big fan of the Sermon on the Mount, apparently. When before he was president, he said, in 2006, he said, we cannot rebuild this economy on the same pile of sand. We must build our house upon a rock. Sermon on the Mount reference. Uh, he said that when we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you want to be treated. The golden rule from the Sermon on the Mount. And then just a few weeks ago, in his defense for same-sex civil unions, he said, if people find that controversial, I would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So I would disagree with that, but we can talk about that later. But so the leader of the Western world is quoting from this sermon all over the place, before and during his presidency. So what's the point? What's the point of this sermon? So who, who can live by these rules, right? 
I mean, is it even realistic to demand all of this stuff from us? Like, who can really love their enemies? And if we actually followed these rules, would it maybe even be bad for our society? Like, wouldn't it be better for the guy who steals your coat to get arrested and go to jail rather than you just then give him your undershirt and he goes away free? Like, come on, Jesus. Can it be good to stand by and watch evil and not retaliate against that? And what's really the harm in taking an oath, like in a courtroom? Is that that sin when we do that? This sermon seems to raise more questions than it seems to answer for a lot of us. So what we're going to try to do over the next couple months is try to answer some of these questions. Well, before we do that, I want to give you a... Throughout the centuries, the millennia, basically since Jesus preached this, people have tried to interpret this sermon as a whole in ways in which to answer those questions that I was just asking. So I'm going to give you a a few examples of ways that people have tried to interpret this. There's the absolutely literal interpretation. Um, So some famous people that do this are like the the Mennonites, the Quakers, some of the the Amish folks who basically say, I will never join the army. I will be a complete pacifist. I will be completely about peace because it would be sin for me to join the army or go to war because of Jesus' command to not retaliate, to turn the other cheek, and to love your neighbor. Um, And consequently, they also basically will never go into court because they they would see it as sin to take the oath to not lie. So this is a completely literalistic interpretation of this sermon. What I'll just suggest to you, we'll talk more about this over the next few weeks, what I'll suggest to you is they seem to be seeing this as a, a checklist of things to do. And I don't think that's what Jesus is going after. I think he's more in this sermon going about what we should be or who we should be rather than what we should do. Um, there's several other interpretations. I'll just skip a couple of these because we need to move. But one of the most prevalent and famous interpretations of this that is not all bad, in fact, I think it's actually really good, but I think it's a little falling short too, is the Lutheran interpretation. Who is the Lutheran interpretation named after? Martin Luther, okay? So the the great reformer, he says that this sermon is just like the law in the Old Testament in that it acts as a mirror. It shows us just how sinful we are and that we need the gospel of Jesus. So he always makes the, the dichotomy, the comparison of law showing us how bad we are and gospel. And I think there's parts of this sermon in which that is absolutely true. And that we see this sermon and we just read everything that we just heard read and say, I am not that. Right? I need Jesus. However, I think that's a little lacking in that Jesus nowhere here doesn't ever imply that we're not supposed to actually do this or be this. He's not giving us just kind of a teaching on Uh, a theological lesson here. It seems to be a call to action, right? It seems to be for us to actually be the things that he's teaching us to do. So 
I think Luther is so right in that this should act as a mirror, and we're going to talk a lot, a lot about that, but I think it's also more than that. If you, James talks about if you look in the mirror and your hair is just completely out of, out of whack, you'd be crazy, right, to look in the mirror and then just kind of walk away, right? You, no, you stand and you fix it. It causes you to action. So the gospel then changes who we are so that things actually change in our lives. So then maybe the most common in the world around us, the unbelieving world around us, say that none of the miracles in the Gospels could have happened. Jesus didn't really walk in the water. He didn't really turn the water to wine. And he for sure wasn't raised from the dead. But he was a good teacher. So let's, this, basically, these three chapters embody what the teaching of Jesus was. It was a good ethical teacher. So these are just some ethics for us to live by, and the world would be a better place if we did live by them. The problem with that is that they seem to be taking these three chapters, not only out of the immediate context of the chapters before and after them, but the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. So if they're taking things out of the context of Matthew, let's talk about Matthew. Okay, we mentioned him last week in our mission sermon, but who is Matthew? Anybody remember? Tax collector, what happened in the text that we talked about last week? Jesus called him, and he, we call him Levi in, in the book of Luke. But what happened? Yeah. 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 There the tax collectors all around him. And he becomes one of Jesus' disciples, and then he later then writes this letter. So Matthew is a Jew, Okay. So he knows all about the Old Testament, and it seems to me that based on the rest of the book of Matthew with so many Old Testament references that he's primarily talking or writing to other Jews. So we see this um, in lots of places, um, even just the first four chapters before this. I want you to see, maybe you don't, you don't have to turn there, but, Jesus, but he, Matthew immediately in verse 1-1 so the book of, gene, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, David, the son of Abraham. And then through chapter 1, he seems to be saying that Jesus is the new David. He was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, just like David, and that he is now the king. David was pointing towards this one who is Jesus. And then we see Jesus uh, go through. He comes out of Jerusalem or at Bethlehem, and he goes down to Egypt and then he comes back. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Where Israel was in the land. And then why did they go to Egypt in the end of Genesis? The nation of Israel. Which was probably just a few people at that time. Anybody remember? Joseph's brothers. Why did they go to Egypt? There was a famine. Okay, So they go to escape with their very lives. They stay in Egypt for far longer than they had anticipated, 432 years. And then God calls them out of Egypt. They go through the water of the Red Sea. And then they're tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they come back through the Jordan River, and then they conquer the land. Let's look at the first two chapters of Matthew, where Jesus is called out of the land and into Egypt where he stays a little bit longer than he, his, he and his family had anticipated. He comes back into Egypt. He goes through the waters 
of the Jordan River where he's baptized, like Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea. He's tempted in the wilderness for not 40 years, but for 40 days. And where Israel was disobedient, he is obedient. And then he comes back through the Jordan River, just like Israel, and he begins his conquest of the land, entering, ushering in the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew seems to be saying that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of who David was or who Moses was, but he's also the fulfillment of all of Israel, of all of the Old Testament. Pretty cool, huh? So it would seem to me like this is pretty, Matthew would probably throw a fit if you said that chapter five, chapters 5 and 7 are just some ethical teachings of Jesus. Matthew seems to be saying what Jesus is doing is he's going up on a mountain and giving law, like Moses did. Going up onto a mountain and giving law. And he is the fulfillment of all of human history. All of the Bible is culminating in this man, this God-man. So we have to keep in mind the context of chapters 5 and 7 through the context of the entire book of Matthew. And it can't just be about ethics, because in verses chapter 121, the angel says to Joseph, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then later in chapter 26 at the, at the uh, Lord's Supper, Jesus says, he takes bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And we had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So we cannot keep these three chapters by themselves, isolated, taking it apart from the cross of Christ at the end of the story. So, the next few weeks, if you've kind of gotten where I'm going with this, I'm not going to start with... 5-1 one, one, one here in the Beatitudes. I just want to try to give us an intro for the next few weeks. But doing so, we're going to try to answer three questions every single week. And these th three questions are going to be, who are we? Who ought we become? Who does Jesus want us to be? And how do we get there? Okay? Every week, we're going to try to answer those questions. Who are we? Who ought we become? And how do we get there? So, this morning, who are we? I think Luther is right. We are not currently, right now, what Jesus is calling us to be. We can read these three chapters again and again and note and see that nearly everything that Jesus calls of us, we don't do that. Right? So, who ought we become? What is Jesus calling us to become? I think throughout the entirety of the sermon, it's like Caleb told us that Jesus is calling for a heart change, not just changing the what we do. You guys ever heard, any of you guys that go to a classical, classical school, what the words, the Latin words quorum deo mean? Ever heard that? Quorum deo. What's deo? Anybody? Deo? God? Okay, quorum means before the face. So quorum deo, this is a Latin phrase that's been used throughout the centuries, just means before the face of God. And I think if we could summarize the sermon, a lot of what it's saying is Jesus is saying, all of your life, 
your actions, your heart, your thoughts, your motivations, everything that you do think or, think or want in your life should be lived quorum Deo, should be lived wholly before the face of God because you cannot hide what you're thinking about, what you're doing, why you're doing it, or certainly your actions from God. So all of it is before the face of God. So that's for us too, right? We don't just show up on Sunday mornings. We don't just uh, sing some songs. We don't even just read our Bible uh, throughout the week because that's what we're supposed to do. But because Jesus has changed our heart, and that's what we desire with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So how do we get there? Our third question. How do we get to that Quorum Deo life? A life where our heart and our mind are not divided. Well, again, context is king here in Matthew. In chapter 123, or chapter 1, verse 23, the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What is, does anybody know what Emmanuel means? Matthew tells us. I'm about to tell you if no one else knows what it means. What does Emmanuel mean? Yeah, God with us, Matthew says, which means God with us. And then, so that's in chapter 1. Can somebody turn to Matthew 28, 19 through 20? These are the last two verses of the book. 19 and 20. This is what we commonly call the Great Commission. Can somebody read that real loud? Go ahead. 19 and 20, yeah. Do you see that? Does anybody see what I'm going after here in that very last sentence? Jesus says, says, I am with you. I am God with you. He seems to be saying, I, Emmanuel, I am here with you throughout the end of the age. So we have this, these are like bookends on chapters 1 through 28. Jesus, God with us, is with us through the end of the age. Only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection can we become who he's calling us to be. Okay? One last little observation here. Can somebody, I need two volunteers to read for me. Yeah. Okay, one more. Okay, both of you guys stand up. I want you to turn to chapter 4, verse 23, and you to turn to chapter 9, verse 35. So these are right on the, the bookends of our sermon here. Four, you're 423 and you're 935. Both of you guys stand up. And I want you to read these at the same time. Ready? Are we ready? Okay, ready, set, go. Hold on, wait. Sorry. 
teaching in their synagogues. Go. Teaching in their synagogues. Both of you. Both of you. Teaching in their synagogues. Okay. What? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? They're reading the same thing. What? Go ahead. You guys can sit down. So, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. These are smaller bookends. We have the manual bookends on 1 through 28, and then we've got these little bookends on 4 through 9. So, it is impossible to say that these are just law without first recognizing that Jesus, without anything that we've done in chapter 4, starts going out in all the land and healing people and uh, uh, healing them from every disease and every affliction. He's giving them grace, not based on anything that they've done. And just like in the book of Exodus, where God shows grace to Israel, not because of anything they've done, he takes them out of the land, and only after showing them grace, then he gives the law. He doesn't just give them a bunch of rules to follow, and if they do them, then he'll continue to be good to them, and if they don't, then he just starts cursing them. Right? He shows them complete grace, not based on anything that they've done, and then gives them law. Jesus, in chapter 4, starts healing and teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and shows grace to those who are hurting, and he's compassionate to those who are hurting and in need, and then he goes up to the mountain and he gives the law. And then he, does this, he goes and does the same thing in chapters 8 and 9. He starts healing people and showing compassion towards those. Complete grace. So we have to get those in the right order. We have to start with grace, and then, because of the grace, the overwhelming grace, the amazing grace of Jesus at the cross, then we have law, a call to respond, a call to become more like Jesus. But isn't this our, isn't this our tendency as humans to do this? Where we say, I have to do this in order for God to accept me. And if I don't do this, God will not accept me. This is not the gospel. And this is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is not the book of Matthew and is not the Bible. Grace comes which causes heart and inward change. So this is how we get there. The gospel of Jesus. Okay? So who are we? Wretched sinners. Who are we to become? People who live all of our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God. And How do we get there? Through the gospel, through grace. Okay? That's what we're going to do for the next eight or nine, ten weeks. Okay? So hopefully we can start to answer all those questions from all these texts that are really confusing. Okay? All right. So let's break up into small groups. Um, since we didn't really get into the nitty gritty of this, I provided some questions for the discussion leaders to talk about this at the end. But I would love for this morning to just us kind of talk about things that are going on in our life. So the, your leaders are going to ask you just some highs and lows of your week. And I would really prefer you guys not to just give some, uh, I had a really delicious hamburger, and that was the high of my week. That may be true. But I would really love for you guys to really 
talk about what's going on in your life, what's making you, what made you glad this week that we can rejoice with you and what's really troubling you that we can pray with you and encourage you, okay? So let's be honest with each other and talk about what's going on, okay?